Hello and welcome to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. I'm Susanna Streeter. I'm the Senior Investment and Markets Analyst here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And as usual, I'm with Sarah Coles, our Senior Personal Finance Analyst. And Sarah, we are going to have the quiz later. I'm sure you can't wait, but I have a quick question for you before I begin. So, have you been buying A, alcohol, B, cigarettes or C, glad rags recently. Oh, blimey. What a nice, nice way to surprise me at the opening of this with the quiz, which we know is obviously my favourite bit. You won't be surprised to hear that I haven't been snapping up designer fashions for myself, but my teenagers are growing at a ridiculous rate, which is costing me a fortune in new clothes. Actually, now I come to think of it, I am probably holding my own in the gin department too. I thought so. Well, single-handedly, Sarah, you are almost representing the rise we've seen in the most recent snapshot of retail sales. Volumes rose in supermarkets because we're snapping up ciggies and alcohol, gin included, while preparations for holidays and summer events saw clothes sales lift. Yes, the rise in sales was a bit of a surprise, especially given that we're having to spend so much more on bills now. And it's not just shoppers facing this challenge. High commodity costs for everything from wheat to oil prices means that manufacturers are wrestling with much higher input prices too. And that's just one of a myriad of pressures on manufacturers right now. There are also worries that economies could be tipped into recession by efforts of central banks to try and keep a lid on rampant inflation. Meanwhile, we've got the ongoing crisis of COVID in China easing slightly, but lockdowns really have caused fresh supply chain issues for companies. And that's led to expectations that more companies will onshore production facilities a lot closer to home to try and avoid snarl-ups in the future instead of contracting out manufacturing to suppliers on the other side of the world so the pendulum of globalisation could be swinging back the other way, which could come at a cost. Yeah, there's an awful lot going on. So that's what we're going to be delving into on today's podcast in an episode called The Factory Floor. To get the lowdown on the challenges facing the manufacturing sector, we're talking to Elliot Barlow from UK Fashion and Textiles, who's been in the business for years. Elliot, some pretty hefty developments to navigate right now, I imagine. Yes, we've seen a lot of uh, big changes happen in the last couple of years. Some have been surprising and some have really caught us off guard. Well, there's a lot going on, I know. So thanks for joining us on the programme. I really look forward to finding out more about developments later on. We'll also be talking to Sophie Lund-Yates, our lead equity analyst, who's been looking at some listed companies in the sector. Hi, Sophie. You've got quite a mix of businesses for us this time, haven't you? Hi, Sarah. Yes, definitely an eclectic mix I'll be discussing this week. I'll be talking about everything from the humble cardboard box to a tech giant. So looking forward to getting stuck into that in a little while. Thanks very much, Sophie. Looking forward to hearing more a little bit later. We'll also hear from Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Analysis and Research here at Hargreaves Lansdowne, who's been speaking to Julian Foch, Fund Manager at Lion Trust Asset Management. And we'll have the quiz, of course. And I'll be taking you back to the factory floor, Sarah. And don't worry, you won't need a hairnet and overboots. You'll be pleased to know. But I do have a few tricky questions up my sleeve. But first talking about sleeves, it was demand for posher frocks and other occasion wear which really helped boost retail sales in April, according to the British Retail Consortium. Yes, after so many months of not being able to go out and party or travel, we're keen to get stuck into both. So we've actually been buying the clothes to kind of go with our new lifestyles. It means demand's holding up despite the cost of living crisis, which is likely to owe something to the fact that so many people still have some lockdown savings, so they may feel a bit more relaxed about splashing out. 
that the figures showed that preparations for weddings and holidays really helped lift volumes in clothing shops, and separate figures from the Office for National Statistics showed that food stores were boosted by almost 3%, partly due to higher spending on alcohol. Yeah, it seems that a trend is emerging for people to buy items to help them experience life's pleasures rather than items to decorate the home with sales of furniture in household goods stores falling back slightly. So overall, this is an unexpected burst of momentum for the retail sector and that given consumer demand is showing little sign of easing off just yet, the Bank of England will be even more focused on raising interest rates to try and lower prices. It's particularly surprising how resilient shoppers appear to be, given the the GFK Consumer Confidence Index for May showed a dramatic fall-off in optimism, with the lowest reading shown since records began back in 1974. Well, the Bank of England faces the supremely tricky task now of trying to put a lid on demand without causing a lingering recession, but the majority of investors are prepared for an inevitable path of tighter monetary policy. According to our HL Investor Confidence Index, Confidence that interest rates will be higher over the next six months remains at 92%, while confidence that rates will rise in the medium term has also risen slightly. So for businesses with a great deal of borrowing, higher interest rates pose a challenge in themselves. But even those without significant debts, they're faced with trying to tread a really tricky tightrope. So on the one hand, customers are facing a squeeze from all sides, so they might not be able to cope with price rises. But then on the other side, their own costs are rising. And that's everything from energy prices and raw materials to their overheads. And there's only so much they can absorb. The Office for National Statistics calculates that the price of these inputs is up almost a fifth in a year. And that's rising faster than any other time on record. Separately, it's asked businesses about the biggest impact of price rises on their operations. And while two-fifths said it was absorbing costs that hurt the most, just over a quarter said it was passing the price rises on that hurt. And this was particularly striking among manufacturing and accommodation of food service industries. That was, of course, in late April, and the trend has been continuing. Interestingly, necessity appears to be becoming the mother of invention because one in ten businesses say they've become more innovative since the onset of the pandemic. And what's also interesting, Sarah, in that data is that firms are still facing real difficulties importing, with two-thirds facing that issue, despite a slight fall from March. Now, while some of this is related to the additional paperwork associated with Brexit, the Shanghai shutdown has exacerbated the issues facing some firms, with the closure of factories piling up problems for importers large and small, with trucks and lorries commandeered to replace industrial components with groceries for the millions of Chinese locked inside their homes. Now, this has put the prospect of onshoring, bringing production closer to home, back in focus. At Davos, towards the end of May, it was discussed as one of the major trends emerging around the world. So there's an awful lot to unpack here, so it's a good job we have our guest Elliot Barlow from UK Fashion and Textiles. So Elliot, just to set the What is the UK known for when it comes to textile manufacturing and have we seen any particular growth areas? Yes, and historically the UK uh, manufacturing industry of textiles has been world leading. Uh, We have one of the longest histories of textile production, mainly based up in the north. Lots of wool, lots of cotton and linen has been produced here historically. And uh, that's really shaped the uh, import and export trade of our country and put it on the map. In terms of finished products, we're known very well around the world for high quality uh, woolen products, overcoats, your outerwear garments, but also um, suitings uh, and fine finished products. 
And so let's now talk about the, the inflationary pressures affecting manufacturing right now. How is it affecting UK manufacturing in particular? Well, firstly, with UK clothing manufacturers, they're quite distinct to those that operate globally. And for the most part, they aren't what's called an OEM, which is an original equipment manufacturer. Um, so therefore, they don't typically purchase the materials. They in, uh, in themselves are selling their labour instead. So their clients, their fashion brands and businesses that want to produce here um, are the ones that are bearing a lot of the cost uh, increase due to inflation, whereas the manufacturers are typically uh, being able to operate at the same prices. So is that across the board, though? I mean, surely there are some uh, manufacturers here in the UK who still have to import um, raw materials and also the fact that it's a lot more expensive to transport goods as well. So even shipping costs are rising. For those manufacturers that are operating in that way, but that's typically within other sectors, the UK clothing manufacturers uh, operate in a slightly different model from those abroad. They follow a system called CMT, where they just provide the cutting and making and trimming of the garments that they're making. So for, for that, they're not the ones that are purchasing the raw materials. They're not the ones that are shipping the materials in. A lot of that responsibility is down to the brands and businesses who produce with them. So... In turn, for manufacturers that are based here in the UK clothing industry, they can continue to operate and have operated throughout the pandemic uh, without too much um, at risk due to the inflation. That's definitely a, a real bonus for the industry, but presumably they also have their overheads to consider and those, as, as we all know, they're all going up massively, aren't they? Definitely. That's one area where they're going to see a big increase. It requires a lot of energy to use all the different types of machinery that are connected to producing clothing. Uh, and because of that, that in turn is just multiplied. And in terms of then how they operate, are they able to sort of pass those costs back to the, the companies that they're producing for? They can do. They can change the prices that they ask for to produce the garments. Usually it's it's assigned to uh, each uh, each item that's costed in. Um, and that will definitely be something that will be, be appearing much more readily on the final bill for the fashion brands. As far as onshoring is concerned, this trend of bringing production closer to home, um, do you think uh, UK manufacturers are rubbing their hands with glee at that thought? Or do you think it's still quite a long way off before we see really large volumes making their way here? I think so. There's a, there's a few different issues in there that needs to be unpacked. I think there's a lot of fashion manufacturers that have um, that are very much welcoming the return. Um, but for the most part, globalisation over the last 30 years or so has really moved so much of the production abroad. We haven't necessarily got the skills force to be able to produce big volume here. So it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation. If we get a lot more work that's coming back to this country to be able to produce, it shows that there's a demand for that here and hopefully that will entice more people to work in the industry and then we can supply that demand. Do you think that could spur on a big spurt of automation, digitisation to try and find efficiencies and make up for the labour shortfall? Or do you worry that if we're heading towards recession, companies may delay that necessary investment? In essence, I don't believe that the recession will hold that back. The manufacturing sector has continually proved its resilience and purpose during the pandemic, and it stayed open throughout that time. And it also added a significant and vital income to the country over that period. And as we are moving more towards um, 
hopefully high amounts of production in the, in this country um we can put ourselves back on the map as being a a, a production destination and if is there's more interest in the country to be able to produce here um there's more opportunity for investment um and we have greater control over that here being a smaller country so it it should in turn entice other industries to apply their learnings and knowledge bring that into um into the manufacturing sector and hopefully develop more to a digitally integrated and automated manufacturing base and do you think there's a, a sort of process of adjustment, say, for a firm, if it's, for example, bringing production back on shore, do they have certain expectations about margins that they're going to have to rethink when they're sort of bringing production closer to home? Absolutely. Margins is one of the main reasons that a lot of fashion brands have been hesitant to want to reshore to this country. Uh, as consumers, we've become so used to decreasing costs in garments due to outsourcing uh, and producing in low-cost labour countries. And where we charge a living wage in this country, the cost of the materials and the products that are produced here are far more expensive than abroad. It means that the prices are greater that the fashion brands have to um, purchase from. It's a big expectation that a brand to reshore is going to have to stomach a higher cost. And those costs would in part need to be passed on to the consumer. Do you think with an increased appetite for a sustainable brand, that could certainly help uh, propel more brands towards uh, UK manufacturing? Or do you think because of the looming cost of living squeeze, that desire for more sustainable but inevitably more expensive products is going to be pushed further into the long grass? Mm. Yes. I mean, as the world moves more towards sustainable and ethical goals, um, there's less room for fashion brands and businesses to hide behind those opaque standards of practice that they've built up over such a long period of time. And unfortunately, as consumers, we've become so accustomed to purchasing from fashion brands who've built themselves off the back of low cost labour and exploitation. that The value that's often associated with raw materials to finished products has been driven lower and lower over time. Therefore, the justification for increasing those prices has to be met with a very plausible reason for why it should be considered in the eyes of the consumer as worth the value for money. But the UK can offer so much in terms of transparency and traceability, and as well as also a growing conscience within the wider consumer mindset, that's typically the millennial and Gen Z demographics, that a greater understanding of the impacts of fashion and apparel products has on our environment and those who produce it. And I think they're more willing to pay a higher price for improved principles and practices and really challenge those brands on their credentials as they continue to produce in that way. Given the, the sort of the trend towards onshoring, and if that if that was to continue, presumably we have we do have some capacity issues um, producing in the UK. I mean, do you think then that the, the future is going to be sort of quite a lumpy process of trying to of trying to increase capacity? Um, and of course, with the increased labour costs that that's likely to bring too. Yes, I think so. It's going to be a bumpy road ahead, but no more bumpy than it has been. There's quite a few factors that have reshaped the UK manufacturing uh, industry over the past few years. And the biggest issue that we have at the moment that we're facing is a growing skills gap and really trying to change the stigma of what working in manufacturing is like. If there's an increase in interest, as we mentioned before, about digitalization and automation and engineering elements, hopefully it can really entice people to want to enter into the industry and make those innovative changes. It becomes exciting um, and that's when we really gain 
gain ground and progress uh, as an industry. And has there been any um, increase in to kind of loungewear products? Because, of course, they really increased during the pandemic. And actually, athleisure wear is is still on vogue right now. Would you say that UK manufacturers are, are pushing into that area increasingly? Absolutely. I think there's two elements of that. First of all, Susanna, that over the pandemic, the change of consumer lifestyle habits meant that a lot more of the customers were wanting to purchase loungewear because they didn't have anywhere to go. They didn't have any functions to attend to. So they still wanted to buy products and loungewear was was something that they could wear comfortably at their home. And the knock-on effect of that is, is that many UK manufacturers moved more towards producing those types of garments at the request of their clients who were the brands. And now we're out and about once more and demand for loungewear has, has dropped a little. Is is that a particular headwind or do you think it's it's a fashion that really is here to stay? I think it's a fashion that's here to stay. I think as we've not changed exactly from one type of living into another just yet. There's a lot of this working from home and there's a lot of enjoying being at home and understanding that the, the simple pleasures of life are in the home. And I think loungewear has, has formed a, a big part of that trend. So I think it will still remain. Elliot, it's been really fascinating talking to you, finding out uh, what's happening in UK manufacturing, certainly as far as fashions and textiles are concerned. Really great to have you on the programme. Thank you very much for having me. Let's bring in Sophie Lund-Yates now, our lead equity analyst at Hargreaves Lansdowne. And Sophie, you've been looking at some of the listed companies operating in this sector, in the manufacturing sector. Tell me what's caught your eye. So to start off, I'll be talking about DS Smith, which is a cardboard box maker, which I know doesn't sound very glamorous, but to me, there is a lot that makes them quite exciting. The world obviously needs a lot of cardboard, first and foremost. All of our online shopping comes wrapped in the stuff and all those products on supermarket shelves get delivered in it as well. Um, It's one of those crucial supply chain inputs that gets forgotten, in my opinion. And at the time of recording, DS Smith's expecting full-year underlying operating profit to be about £605 to £615 million. And that comes as price increases and volume growth have more than offset inflationary headwinds. Speaking of those headwinds, DS Smith definitely isn't immune to rising costs. Um, But as those profit projections are kind of proving, DS Smith is a really classic example of how the world is prepared to pay whatever it costs to get what it needs. And that's why DS Smith has been able to increase its own prices alongside rising inflation. And a big reason for the resilience is that it has a lot of exposure to e-commerce, which I mean, you don't need me to tell you that, that that's been growing rapidly and is expected to continue doing so. I should mention that the balance sheet is carrying a little bit more debt than is ideal. And that's following the acquisition of Europac, which is a French, Spanish and Portuguese packaging group. But management's expecting net debt to be about 1.7 times underlying cash profits, which you might see abbreviated as EBITDA in the results um, at the full year. Now, that does suggest some some progress on on that front, which kind of brings me nicely to the group's dividend, um, which is now back on the table after a COVID-related pause last year. Um, And in light of the improving trading, the 5.5% prospective dividend yield looks to be well covered for now. Um, However, this is contingent on price increases continuing to offset those rising input costs without denting volumes. And that is the crux. And just please remember that this isn't guaranteed and and yields aren't a reliable indicator of future income. So that's the business of packaging. But what about what goes inside all of those parcels? Let's talk about Apple. What kinds of headwinds is uh, it facing? 
There is no getting away from the fact Apple has huge exposure to troubled supply chains, particularly Asia. The tech giant has said it expects to lose sales of up to $8 billion in the current quarter. That's $8 billion in the current quarter. There are big delays across some key products, which is what's causing the issues. And Apple, I mean, isn't much without its products after all, if, if you think about it. And the other thing I need to mention is inflation shock horror. Household incomes are under immense pressure in some of Apple's major markets, including the UK and the the US. That may well mean people are deciding to hold off throwing £1,000 at a new iPhone. And the flip side to this, of course, is that Apple has one of the most successful brands on the planet. So that does mean it has some cushioning. People will push their limit on some occasions to make sure that, you know, they have the latest model of, of this tech. But that brings me to kind of a wider concern. And that is that Apple's economic moat is narrow. And all I mean by that is that competitors may start to eat into some of its enormous success. So while the brand is in its heyday, absolutely, there's not technically much standing in the way of that being eroded. There are companies out there, predominantly in Asia, that are already bigger than Apple. And I'm not suggesting Apple is in immediate trouble. It's still a powerhouse, but it is one to watch as the world of technology evolves. And let's go back to fashion. What's the focus for ASOS in particular? Yes, absolutely. Bring it back to bring it back to on theme for this week. Another element to consider with manufacturing quite clearly is online fashion. The supply chain networks for these digital giants cannot be overstated. Um, I mean, we saw ASOS's CEO step down in October last year. The supply chain and cost issues were expected to affect profits moving forwards. There was a nasty fall in half-year pre-tax profit as the benefits from, from COVID spending habits unwound as well. And we saw supply chain disruptions stifle growth in all regions. But to the group's credit, growth in the UK and the US was still 8% and 11% respectively. Now, as the year progresses, there is no real easy fix. The group itself has warned that reduced discretionary spending could impact performance as well. ASOS has been sticking sales stickers on to stimulate activity, but putting gross margins under pressure while the supply chain is in a tough spot is not an ideal situation. And ASOS's longer term potential, it is still intact in my view, but there will be some ups and downs, sadly. Thanks, Sophie. I'm impressed you managed to bring together the glamour of cardboard boxes, mobiles and fast fashion for us. Now I'd like to bring in Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Research and Analysis here at Hargreaves Lansdowne. She's been talking to Julian Fosch, a fund manager at Lion Trust Asset Management. Hi, Julian. Hello, Emma. How are you? Yes, I'm great. Thank you very much. So we're here today to talk about manufacturing and in particular with the engineering kind of building materials slant that you have exposure to in the portfolio. But before we get into the kind of stock nitty gritty, I just really wanted to take a step back and understand how you as an equities manager are trying to make sense of some of the less than positive forecasts we're getting for the UK economy and indeed for the global economy over the next 12 to 18 months. How does that economic backdrop impact the way that you build up the investment case for stocks in your portfolio? We're very much bottom-up investors. We're the best will in the world. However, people have to try to forecast. Most forecasts are wrong, uh, and it's just a very difficult thing to do. So if, you, if you're a member of an asset allocation uh, committee or something like that, 
you know, good luck to you. But what we've evolved is a completely different, really, way of looking at the world, which is we don't try and let prevalent beliefs or expectations about the economy infect or affect the way we go about stock selection. What we try and do instead is build pretty concentrated portfolios, so something like 40 to 60 stocks, so not too uh, many that you can't keep close tabs on them, but not too few, so that the portfolio is exposed to too much risk if, if we get you know, anyone um, wrong, which of course does happen from time to time. The aim is to try and build a portfolio that's sufficiently diversified across sectors, which encompasses stocks that are different stages of their own individual cycles, um, but then to study them hard so we understand those cycles. So you know, what I'd try and pass on to investors is really not to be too clever, but just um, clever enough. Now, obviously, you're going to have some biases um, in that, and it's important to understand the, the, the bias that your particular investment philosophy gives you in, in that regard. And so our bias is towards uh, what's known as quality, so high return on capital businesses, but with strong balance sheets and strong solvency. So to neatly you know, square the circle to your opening question, we don't try and predict the future, but if the the, the more bearish and gloomy um, uh, predictions out there are correct, then this is an environment in which quality tends to do relatively well. Uh, quality companies, because they have high returns stemming from a competitive strength in their position in their markets uh, usually generate a lot more cash than they need to fund their ongoing growth. They, they use that to pay down debt, they have, so they have solid balance sheets. The flip side, of course, is that they tend to be a bit more expensive um, than the average company because uh, you know, quality costs. We tend to do very well or you know, relatively very well in steep downturns uh, where growth is contracting or there's a market shock. We lag a little behind in the recovery phase when finally uh, markets you know, realize that the bad times are, are behind them and the good times are rolling again. We do a lot of work in, in finding companies with a genuine strength, uh, a niche in, in, in something about competitive advantage and the way they do things. And then as long-term investors, just um, nurture them really. You know, quality does help to smooth those returns over the long term. And as you say, hopefully helps to, to mitigate somewhat um, the sort of uh, the dangers of the market. But I think it's also fair to say there are certain sectors which just are more sensitive to economic growth or, or lack thereof. And if we are going into recession next year, which a number of forecasters, albeit nothing is guaranteed, um, seem to predict that will have an impact on cash flows of certain sectors, won't they? I mean, if you just think back to kind of the global financial crisis, um, you know, thinking about things like the crane index, which is an index which sort of says how many cranes there are in the sky as a sort of proxy for how robust um, the construction industry is. The crane index took a massive downturn during that time because people were just building less. You know, ditto, um, people buy less, consumers tend to save more um, and spend less money. Inflation is another factor which impacts that as well. So if we're going into this sort of higher inflation and lower growth environment, what do you need to be mindful of within the sort of manufacturing and, and, and industrials and engineering sectors that that will impact? So first and foremost, I think uh, it's a strong balance sheet or strong solvency characteristic. A technique we use 
is borrowed from a, a third-party provider uh, name of Quest, um, and it's based on the Altman Z-score. So the Z-score famously is the thing that predicts, it has 100% accuracy in terms of predicting companies that go bust. It focuses on some key, um, you know, some solvency measures. We use a variation of that called the QRR, the Quest Risk Rater. So that really looks at the well-known accounting flags alongside some of, uh, you know, acute solvency um, measures and simply scores every company in the market uh, relative to every other one. And quite a lot of these engineers score very strongly on this. So how take Halma, for example, the uh, safety detection and um, quality of life company. Halma has a has never deviated from uh, 97% of oscillates between 97th percentile and 99th percentile over the last uh, 15 years. Similar examples, Renishaw, which we hold, also a highly, highly solvent company. Rotalk, also um, in actuators. So solvency is a, is a key thing to focus on. In a, in a broad sense, I think there's a trade-off for investors always between price or the valuation that you're prepared to pay, solvency, and financial security. And, and so when times get tough, you know, when the crane index perhaps is plummeting, that's when you would expect to see people rotate a bit more towards the more robust companies. So it's not so much about that these companies aren't going to face the knocks. It's just that they are in a more robust position to be able to manage the knocks when they come because they have more cash, because they have less debt. Because I think there's nothing that these companies can do to sort of stave off the economic downturn if it comes. It's more about, you're saying as a stock picker, look for those ones that are more likely to survive the hard times. Exactly. And particularly, you know, look look for what the past can tell you about the future. So Renishaw, a world-leading company in metroscopy and medical devices, when Chinese demand contracted um, very severely a decade ago, 2009, I think, 10, they had three successive profit warnings. But what we look for um, in a company is what is the underlying the delivered results. What is it that makes this company special? And if they're the only one or a world leader in what they do, um, these products are going to be affected by the, the, the knocks, as you put it, of, of what's going on in the economy. But as long as they haven't lost the essence of what makes them a, a must-have company, they're going to come back stronger. And so, you know, what, what you saw after that downturn was Renishaw's return on capital, which is the, the measure we use, um, move to ever higher levels. And it's been a terrific long-term investment for that reason. If you have a must-have product, then so long as you don't go bust, <laughs> you know, whatever the economy holds in store for you, people will, will want your goods. You can see that coming through some of the trading statements in some of these companies. I'm thinking that of Coates, the world leading manufacturer of sewing thread and supplies, who just um, recently in their last statement advised of robust sales growth, strong pricing in their environment. So companies, in a sense, we're sort of coming out of the COVID post-COVID recovery, and that led to a lot of euphoria. And now that's being tempered, obviously, by higher interest rates, by the, the realisation that things don't go in a straight line, and hence the, the, the worries and the forecasts that you're, you're leading to, um, you know, not obviously not helped by high inflation and the, and the war in Ukraine, are leading to an amount of caution coming in again. But if you, if you have a, have a must-have product, um, so long as you can run your, your company efficiently, your, your balance sheet, you've conserved your cash, you will be fine. Julian, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Emma. Emma Wall, our Head of Investment Research and Analysis at Hargreaves Lansdowne, talking to Julian Foch, a fund manager at Lion Trust Investment Management. He must be working in a pretty glorious bit of countryside right now. I'm very jealous being stuck here in the broom cupboard studio. 
and please do bear in mind that these are the views of the fund manager and are not individual stock recommendations. You're listening to Switch Your Money On from Hargreaves Lansdowne. And finally, it's time for the quiz. And Susanna has been exploring some of the mind-boggling facts around manufacturing. So I was racking my brains earlier when I was trying to think about anything I knew about manufacturing and realised that for five years of my life, I was in smelling distance of one of two factories, both of which greatly improved my quality of life. So one was a brewer in Edinburgh, so you could smell the hops roasting. And the other was when I lived on the outskirts of Bourneville. And the air just always smelt of chocolate. Well, I can actually share that experience because I grew up near Fry's factory in Kentsham. So there we are. But I'm not sure if living surrounded by the smell of chocolate is really brilliant or terrible. Uh, I know certainly uh, some pupils used to come in with lots of cut price chocolate to sell at break time. So in many ways, it was pretty brilliant in my teenage years. But anyway, given you've brought up manufacturing geography... I'm going to start by asking about the areas of the UK with the highest manufacturing output in 2020. The area producing the most manufacturing value was the North West at an impressive £27.4 billion. But what area came second? Was it the West Midlands, the East Midlands or the South East? Well, I suppose sticking with what I know, I mean, I know there's a huge amount of manufacturing in the West Midlands. So I'd assume that's the answer. I'm afraid not. It is the southeast at 23.4 billion. Although, if it makes you feel any better, the West Midlands was in third place. So there we go. Okay, nil point. Now, looking overall at the UK, in 2019, we were ninth on the list for value of manufactured exports. This was down from seventh place in 2015. But which countries had overtaken us? Was it France and Italy, Mexico and Brazil, or South Korea and Japan. What do you think, Sarah? Oh, blimey. Well, well, I know South Korea and Japan have been kind of close to the top of this particular table for years, so I'll rule them out. So I suppose out of the others, I'd say, oh, probably France and Italy. You are right. Yes, France is now the eighth biggest manufacturing exporter and Italy is seventh. Unsurprisingly, China, the US and Japan remain in the top three spots. Okay, right, as is pretty traditional now, we'll go back in time for this one. The person who patented the production line was an American car manufacturer. But what was his name? Was it Ransom Olds, Henry Ford or William Chevrolet? I'm pretty sure I know this one. I I think it's Henry Ford. No, it wasn't. I'm sorry, it was Ransom Olds who founded Oldsmobile. Henry Ford just improved on it with the first conveyor belt assembly line, which made a huge difference to production. And as for William Chevrolet, I'm afraid I just made him up. (laughs) Oh, well, that's just not fair. Well, seeing as you're doing so badly, let's go back to a factory you actually lived near in Bourneville, where Cadbury famously made chocolate and built their own community, where locals and factory workers could buy or rent pretty good quality homes. Well, since it was first started, something's been banned from sale within the community. But what was it? Was it chocolate bars made by anyone other than Cadbury? Was it Turkish Delight? Or was it alcohol? Ah, brilliant. This is what I do actually know. Um, It was alcohol, because I I lived just outside the boundary and you just couldn't move for pubs and offline centres. As a student, it it was my ideal home. Chocolate and alcohol. What better mix for you, Sarah? Okay, you're right. Yes, it was alcohol, because as Quakers, the Cabris didn't drink alcohol. You see, it all comes back to chocolate and alcohol in the end, which means you managed to get two right this time. 
Do you know, either I'm going to have to expand my range of interests or we're just going to have to stick with these every single time. Who knows? We'll have to wait and see. Well, that's all from us for this time. But we do need to remind you that this was recorded on the 30th of May 2022 and all information was correct at the time of recording. Nothing in this podcast is personal advice. You should seek advice if you're not sure what's right for you. Investments rise and fall in value so you could get back less than you invest and past performance isn't a guide to the future. Yes, this is not advice or a recommendation to buy, sell or hold any investment. No view is given on the present or future value or price of any investment and investors should form their own views on any proposed investment. And this hasn't been prepared in accordance with legal requirements designed to promote the independence of investment research and is considered a marketing communication. Non-independent research is not subject to FCA rules prohibiting dealing ahead of research. However, HL has put controls in place, including dealing restrictions, physical and information barriers to manage potential conflicts of interest presented by such dealing. You can see our full non-independent research disclosure on our website for more information. So all that's left is for me to thank our guests, Elliot, Julian, Sophie, Emma and our producer, Elizabeth Hodson. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again soon. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please do let us know what you think and please do subscribe wherever you get your podcast so you can get a fresh new episode in your inbox as soon as it's ready. Goodbye. <laughs>